there's a direct correlation, meaning the more ratings and the more reviews that our show has, the more people will be able to discover us. And then together, we can live inspired. So do me a quick favor right now. Get ready to hit pause. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you listen to it. Right now, just take a minute. That's just about all it takes. Pause this episode, rate and review the show wherever you're listening. And if you've not yet subscribed to it, then do it right now. Take a moment, just subscribe to it while you're there. I'll be waiting right here for you when you return. My friends, thank you for doing that. And thank you for being part of our Live Inspired community. Welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Some of you may know this, but in addition to leading the Live Inspired movement and being part of the Live Inspired podcast, in my other job, I happen to be a speaker, uh, which allows me to travel not only all around our own community backyard right here in St. Louis, Missouri, but all around uh, the United States and really all around the world. Well, in a couple of weeks, I have the opportunity of sharing the stage with my special guest today. We'll be in Austin, Texas together. It's an event called Lime Aid Engage. It's gonna be awesome. My job while there is to wake people up from accidental living so that they can choose, so they can be equipped, so they can actually be bold enough to live inspired. Well, also on stage while I'm down there is today's guest. Her name is Shabnam Maharabi. She is an incredible presenter. She's also an incredible leader. She shares joy through her media platform called, write it down, Soul Pancake. Soul Pancake is the world's most recognized positive and inspiring media and entertainment company. They create smart and uplifting and meaningful and shareable content. As you learn more about this organization, I have a feeling you're going to know some of the stuff they've already produced. You're going to love it. She's their CEO. She's their executive producer. She's a daughter. She's a sister. Like I said earlier, she's an awesome presenter. She's also an incredible human being. And today, she is our guest on the Live Inspired podcast. Shabnam Maharbi, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hello. Thank you for having me. It is an honor. And we have been a huge fan of yours for a long time. As our listeners just heard, you are the CEO and executive producer of Soul Pancake. But what is Soul Pancake? <laughs> it is not a brunch restaurant. It sounds good. Wondering. Um, although we have talked about inventing a pancake line at some point. Um, so Soul Pancake is a media company and entertainment company and content studio that I founded with a few friends, including actor Rain Wilson, uh, about 10 years ago. And our mission is to create uplifting, positive, joyful content about the human experience. There's a lot of things that make us human, uh, our relationships, big questions we ask, and we we try to create content that tackles that. I think we all need a pet talk. We talk about life's big questions and profound topics. You guys are asking some deep questions. This is deep. You know that I have a great discomfort with that. That's why I wanted to talk to you. Is there such a thing as an original idea? This was great. Everyone was dancing with each other, and it was really fun. To integrity. Yeah. There's nothing like that sense of completely letting go. You don't have to find out you're dying to start living. I swear to God, I feel like someone planted us here for this reason. Destiny. And so we create daily original video content for digital and social platforms. Um, we also have a television business where we're creating content for television and cable networks. We do a lot of work with brands to help them tell better stories. We do live events. Um, and we also help create kind of impact campaigns and do social cause work around some of the content we create uh, alongside that. So that's kind of the universe of what we do. But at our core, we're a mission-driven content and entertainment company that tries to tell stories about the human experience. Brag for a moment on how many people have been influenced by your your storytelling. 
<laughs> um, we have about 10 million fans socially. We've, uh, we've amassed about 750 million video views on the content. Um, so really, truly have had more than 40 series that have gone viral in some capacity. So nearly a billion people, um, we're, we're going to get close uh, probably this year to a billion people having watched uh, Soul Pancake content. So we are going to unpack the story, how you got there, what it means for us, why you do what you do. But before we do, we're going to even push back farther, not just 10 years to the start of it all, but to your growing up period. I I think we're influenced dramatically by what happens to us as kids and who shows up in our life and what they teach us. So talk about growing up. Where'd you grow up? Uh, So I'm born and raised in Southern California, and I am the firstborn child of immigrants uh, and I'm also a Capricorn, so basically I could not have turned out any other way. Um, it was destiny. It was destiny. <laughs> it was destiny. It's in, it's in my genetics, it's in my DNA, it's how I was raised. Um, but yeah, I'm the firstborn child of immigrants, and my my parents came from Iran. Um, so I'm Persian by, uh, my cultural background is Persian. And so my parents came from Iran right before the uh, Iranian revolution, and really came with nothing uh, to the country. And so I grew up without having a whole lot of um, kind of uh, uh, material things, but Mm -hmm. definitely grew up in a family that had a lot of love uh, and a lot of support. Um, I'm the oldest of four girls, so my dad is very outnumbered. (laughs) Um, uh, But but really growing up, it's funny, uh, a lot of Persians and a lot of children of immigrants often say that, you know, my parents expected me to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, right? Like those are the only paths available to me as an immigrant child. Um, And my parents were um, amazing and super supportive. Um, sure. I think my mom would have loved if, if we had, we decided to become doctors, but what she was set would say to us when we were growing up is listen, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what, um, what career you choose, but just try to be of service to the world. Just try to do something that's of service to other people. And you'll always be so much happier in your work if you do that. And so, um, that was kind of the thing growing up that was really ingrained in me is like, I have to do something that's of service. I have to do something that's of service. And so I ended up deciding to study journalism in college because I thought, oh, if I was, if I'm telling stories and, you know, uh, bringing down the man with like, you know, journalism that's breaking mm-hmm. news and, and, and telling news stories that are really kind of challenging the status quo. That's going to be the way that I'm going to be of service to the most people. Um, and really what I learned in, in, in practicing journalism for, for years is that ultimately all of it boils down to storytelling. All of it boils down to telling stories that move people, telling stories that discover some truths, telling stories that bring people uh, a different perspective on the world. That really is is really powerful. And so I've I've leaned into in the last 10 years, the storytelling side of, of that. But it really started growing up from a place of wanting to be of service, or at least that's what my mom told me I had to do. And you have to listen to your mom. <laughs> you have to listen to your mom, but over her shoulder in the corner is the outnumbered father. What, what did you learn about life from your dad? It's funny. My dad and I are very, very similar. We're very, very similar. Um, and, uh, and what I've learned from my dad is how important, honestly, um, family and a support system is, um, having a community. He is so involved. I mean, it's really sweet, actually. He just got an award from the Long Beach Interfaith Council because he has been doing kind of an open, uh, our, our house is kind of open to worship and prayer every Saturday, once a month, uh, every, every month for the last God, almost 10 years now he's been doing this. And it's driven by my dad because my dad really believes that community and family and support and having a community that supports you and that you belong to is really, really important. Um, and so I've learned a lot from from him on that, how important it is to have people in your life that you trust, that you can turn to, who support you, who have your back, mm-hmm. making sure that you don't have people in your life who don't believe in you and who don't support you. And then also how important it is that whenever you're trying to do anything, whether whether you're trying to make change in the world, whether you're trying to um, build your own community and have a support system, whether you're trying to raise a family, it's so important for you to belong to a community, for you to contribute to that community, and for you to have a sense of belonging. I think that's what social media has shown is that people are craving belonging and people are craving feeling connected to a community. And I learned that from my dad because of the way he just engaged in the world around us. When you say the house opens once a month on Saturdays to prayer, is it a specific group? Is it, no, the door is wide open. Come and bring your next door neighbor. (laughs) 
Yeah, the door is wide open. Bring your next door neighbor. So basically once a month, uh, my my religion and our religion, our religion as a family is Baha'i. And it's a very kind of inclusive religion. It's based on the principles of unity, that we're all one kind of human family. But uh, what my dad does, what, what he kind of has orchestrated once a month is essentially a place where people can come. They can say prayers together. There's always a guest speaker who talks about some subject, right? Hmm. It could literally be anything from... Uh, uh, you know, politics to gender to uh, how do you, you know, d- talk about race issues? Like it literally like spans the spectrum on on topic, mm-hmm. but there's always a guest speaker who talks and it's literally open to anyone. So there are Baha'is, Christians, Jews, uh, Muslims, people who are atheists who uh, come and anyone can bring a guest or a friend. And my dad cooks eggs and bacon and serves breakfast. And there's usually between 30 to 50 people wow. who just show up in my house once a month on Saturdays and just talk about deep topics um, uh, without a religious lens. And and that's like really important to him. If he feels like it's a way that he can build community. And I, I love it so much. I'm so proud of them for, for doing that every month. Tell me why you think it is that the, the rest of us have such a difficult time stepping away from our own practices and our own faith background to open the door wide enough to allow every, everybody else in so we can have candid conversations as a community. Because I think so much of our belief systems define who we are, right? And, um, you know, what I believe is what I, who I am. And so when I'm confronted with someone who doesn't believe the same thing, it's almost like they don't believe that I am who I am, right? Mm. So it can sometimes be really, really confronting to talk to people who don't believe the same things as you because it's almost like it questions your identity and it challenges your identity of who you are because we are what we believe. And so um, so I think it can be really hard to have those conversations. But I also think that if you approach it from a perspective of like, you know what, I know who I am. I know what I believe. But I also think it's important to understand who other people are and what other people believe. I think that approach, you can get a lot farther on. Um, if you really feel confident and firm and you know, really, really feel deepened almost in who you are, I think then it's a lot easier to have conversations with people who are different from you because then it's less challenging about who you are. Well, and I, I'm nodding my head as you're speaking. And I think that's, of course, true for religion and faith, but it, it's certainly true in politics. And the deeper we go into our own little corner, the more impossible it's going to be to kind of dig our way out of it. Yes, I 100% agree. You, you also mentioned earlier that uh, social media proves that we need community. Do you think it proves that we need it or do you think we can find it within social media? (laughs) That's like the decade old question of social media, right? Um, I think that social media definitely proves the need for it. I think the reason we're drawn to, you know, these communities, Facebook pages, groups, um, whoever we follow on Instagram, it's because we want to belong. We want to feel like we have a community. We want to feel like we're part of uh, a group. We're part of a group that we belong to. Um, And I think it's like a a genuine, like fundamental human need. It's the reason we lived in packs and formed villages. It's because we felt like we needed to belong to a group or a community. And I think that social media proves that that hasn't gone away despite the fact that we're leaving, living more and more independent lives. It doesn't take away the fact that this is a fundamental, it's in our DNA need to belong and have community. Whether or not social media can deliver on that mm-hmm. um, is, is a really interesting question. I think that some some spaces can. I think, you know, um, from, a, from a very functional, tactical perspective, I have my next door group and I know what my what the issues are in my local neighborhood. And I have my Facebook page for, um, you know, being a mom and you can learn about like moms in your neighborhood and what they're doing. And it helps you belong to those communities. But I do think that the best aspects of that from social media come from once that online goes into the offline. Right. So the fact that people are able to mobilize now marches and gatherings and events and parties and so on and so forth through social that then moves people into an offline experience that's really where social is helping to connect people across different divides and opening up the circle of people you can connect to and then helping to draw them into offline experiences where you can actually connect with people more deeply. You well said. You trade in joy. And uh, it's a battle that you've set yourself. You feel like sometimes you're losing. (laughs) First, uh, talk about trading and joy. What do you do professionally today? So, uh, so 
as a company, so yeah. Pancake tries to create joyful, positive, uplifting stories. And even when we tell stories that are really hard to tell, whether it's about uh, death or it's about uh, gender or it's about racial issues or it's about juvenile incarceration. I mean, we have tackled some really tough, heavy, deep topics, but we always do it through the lens of how can we find the joy and the positivity within those stories? How can we find the joy inside of these humans that make them human that we can really tap into and celebrate. And so I've learned a lot over the years about kind of the science of what uh, brings more joy, what brings more happiness, what brings more gratitude into people's lives through mm-hmm. the ways we've told stories. And then I personally do a lot of speaking events where I talk about some of these lessons we've learned about joy and happiness and gratitude and what are the practices that people can put into place to help them bring more joy into their lives. So um, so I've learned a lot about it. Um, it is a perpetual lifelong struggle, not only personally for me, because you can sometimes get so mired in the things that go wrong and comparing right. yourself others. And, you know, there, you can get so mired in that, that it can be hard to always remind yourself to bring more joy into your life. But I also think as a society, we're battling against, uh, how do we bring more joy into our lives? You're seeing that, you know, depression levels are up, suicide levels are up, uh, loneliness levels are up. The United Kingdom just announced a minister of loneliness last year because loneliness levels are so high amongst the population. So you're seeing this almost crisis of loneliness, depression, suicide, and yet simultaneously, we're not arming kids and arming, uh, you know, college graduates. We're not arming ourselves with the tools for how do we counteract that? How do we build more joy and meaning into our lives? And how do we actually uh, put those practices in place? Well, it's an awesome segue into actually making practical people's life stories. So we're, we're going to we're gonna kind of take the rabbit trail right now since it's appeared in front of us. Suicide on the rise, <laughs> depression on the rise, loneliness on the rise. And yet we're not really tackling this. And yet that's what you in part do in your work. It's certainly what you do, you've done in the speeches that I've heard you share. Help us understand not only why these are on the rise, I think a little bit of the backstory of what, why is this going up around us? That's important. But secondly, and probably even more important, what can we do to counteract that as individuals? Yeah, of course. Um, big, big questions you're asking there. <laughs> yeah, just quickly. You know, we have uh, 90 yeah. seconds for you to quickly give us this, the meaning of life. Begin. Let's, let's answer all of the universe's questions in 90 seconds. Um, so to answer the first part of your question about why are all these things on the rise, I'm sure there are so many people smarter than me, so many social psychologists and, and, and social scientists who are studying this and looking at these trends and trying to figure it out. But from an anecdotal perspective, what I am seeing is that especially in the last 10 to 15 years, we've had this medium, this, this internet medium that has allowed us to become so much more connected to the world, but to also see how much bigger the world is. Mm -hmm. And through communicating online, we thought we were satisfying this need of connecting with people. And yet over the years, I think we've slowly been degrading our ability and our social skills in terms of actually connecting with people. So I remember growing up when someone passed away or there was a tragedy in the community, in the neighborhood, at the school, you know, my mom was on the phone calling people, talking to them. We were going over to people's houses with food and visiting them and talking to them and giving them hugs. And now when someone passes away or there's a cancer diagnosis or there's an accident, we you know, react with a sad face or write a comment or I'm so sorry for your loss. And we wipe our hands. Yeah, We're done. We moved on. We did our part of showing up. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's not really what showing up is. That's not what showing up is. And so I think that we have slowly our abilities to show up for the people around us and for people to show up for us has slowly degraded. Wow. And so we've forgotten how to check in with people. We've forgotten how to really show up for friends. We've forgotten how to be present with people because we think we've done it through social, but we haven't actually done it. And so um, so I think that has contributed to people feeling more lonely, people feeling more disconnected, that when they feel unhappy or sad or they're going through a tough time in their lives or they've lost a job or they've lost a loved one or they've gone through a divorce, they get a quick hit of you know people giving them a sad face or a reaction online, but then the society sustained element of showing up for someone is not happening. And so as a result, people feel more depressed and more suicidal and more lonely. And so, um, 
so I think that's what's causing it. But again, I'm not a social scientist. This is very anecdotal. I think it's better than social I science think. right now. I think you're you're <laughs> crushing the nail into the wood and doing an incredible job. And and speaking of that. I was on a flight recently and sat next to a woman named Susan who was flying out of Colorado. And, and she said, I've been at her for 15 days. And I'm like, oh, awesome. You know, you get some skiing in. And she actually responded, no, I was sitting in Shiva with my friend who lost her spouse. And, you know, I, I didn't know a whole lot about the Jewish tradition of sitting in Shiva. So I asked some questions around it. And she, this woman flew out to be with an old high school friend just to sit with her for 15 days after yeah. the loss of a spouse, not to fix it, not to do a frowny face, hands together, praying and uh, thoughts and prayers, hashtag, like none of that. She was there physically. She was there in presence. And uh, to me, seated next to her, I was deeply moved by a, a friend like that. I wish I had one. I hope I have one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that is show that is showing up in a big way. That is really showing up for someone. And I'm sure her friend felt so supported, so loved that she has a community that has her back in what's a really awful, awful time in her life. Right. So, so the fact that she felt like she had someone who was showing up for her in that way, I'm sure makes her feel so much more connected to right. a larger community and feeling like she belongs to a group of people that will, will show up for her. And I think that's critical for, you know, conquering loneliness, conquering depression, conquering, you know, feelings of suicide, conquering the negative things that can creep into our, our, our minds. I think that's beautiful. So we, we've been talking about it a little bit from the, the, the shadowy side, the negative side, but let's come at it now towards the light. What are some ways that we can step into greater joy and greater gratitude with a little bit more happiness, a little bit more of a skip in our step? Yes. So the first thing I ever tell people when they say, so how can I be more joyful? How can I have more happiness in my life? I'm like, okay, first of all, there's no such thing as a quick <laughs> fix to anything. Um, everything is a practice. Everything takes work and having more joy in your life and more happiness in your life also requires work. You can Google all sorts of things about like, how do I bring more happiness into my life? And they'll say all sorts of things like, you know, write a gratitude journal every day. Well, if you only write a gratitude journal once, it's not going to bring more happiness and joy into your life. It has to become a practice that you actually commit time to every single day. But I'll share with you some of the things that we've learned over time really contribute to kind of uh, what what is in the scientific world called a state of positive psychology, mm -hmm. um, which is really kind of how do you rewire the synapses in your brain to have a more positive reaction to things and, and less of a negative one? How do you kind of build grit and resilience in your brain and reinforce those synapses that re result in positive reactions versus negative ones? Yep. And so that's really what you're building when you build a practice uh, towards gratitude and joy and happiness. And, and gratitude is a really critical part of bringing more joy into your life. And there's a lot of different ways you can think about gratitude. Um, so there's a lot online about, you know, how do you write a gratitude journal? How do you express gratitude regularly? But one of the things I talk a lot about is how important it is to actually express gratitude for mm -hmm. other people in your lives um, without any strings attached, without any caveats. And what a lot of people don't realize is whenever you talk about gratitude of, oh, I'm so grateful that I have fresh air to breathe and I'm so grateful I have a bed to sleep in, that's awesome. And that's a really powerful tool uh, in consistent practice that can help you think positively about the things you do have in your life. But one of the things people don't realize is that oftentimes when you express gratitude to other people, you can see the smile That's on right. their face. You can see how much they're getting a benefit from someone saying thank you to them. But what we don't realize is that our own brains actually have a really positive reaction to expressing gratitude. The impact on ourselves for saying thank you to someone else is actually really profound. And so what I often recommend to people is to think about people every day, try to think of someone who has influenced you or did something for you that was awesome and then actually express the gratitude for them. Like call them, send a text message, write them a letter, you know, send a message on Facebook. It doesn't matter what it is, but make it without any caveats or strings attached. Like, Hey, thank you so much for showing up for me and sitting Shiva with me, you know, for the last week. Hey, thank you for uh, always being a good friend to me. I always feel like you're the person I can call and count on. Hey, thanks for being there when I was going through that breakup and showing up with that, you know, carton of chunky monkey ice cream. Cause that really like made my night that night. And I know that was two years ago, but I think about that often. 
those kinds of messages, when we express them, sure, the person who's receiving it, I'm sure feels great and feels so good about themselves. But we often forget that that's actually a really powerful, positive reinforcement tool in our own brain. Yes. <laughs> so I talk a lot about how important it is to express gratitude without strings attached to people who uh, are important in your life. Um, the second thing that I often talk about in terms of like an, uh, a really effective way to bring more, more happiness and joy into your life is, again, how important it is to build deep, meaningful relationships with people. Um, it is really important to have people in your life that you can be vulnerable with. And vulnerability takes a lot of work. Vulnerability is uncomfortable. It is awkward. It is difficult sometimes to be vulnerable with people, but it's critic. It's a critical component to actually having deep and meaningful relationships with people. And deep relationships are what actually help you feel like you belong to a community and have a sense of belonging, which also a lot of positive psychology shows is critical to a sense of happiness and, and combating loneliness and depression. So when I talk about, um, you know, community and belonging, it really starts with you being willing to be vulnerable, right? And what that means is when you have a conversation with someone, when they ask you, hey, how are you? How's the, how are things going? It's not answering with fine or good, or things are great, or putting the positive spin on things that we all tend to do, right? Mm -hmm. We all tend to say like, oh, things are great. Like I'm killing it at work. And like, you know, family's great. Like it's, it's more real to say, you know what? In general, I have an awesome family. But the other day I realized that I haven't had a real conversation with my 14 year old daughter in like months. And all she ever does is roll her eyes at me. And like, it really hurts my heart. And I don't know what to do about it. But if you have any ideas, I'm open to it. That kind of vulnerability immediately, it's so hard to do. Yes. Nobody ever wants to like reveal their words. But that kind of vulnerability can force the other person to immediately try to meet you where you are. And when someone comes and tries to meet you where you are in a vulnerable place, the, the speed with which you connect with them is so much faster. It is so much faster and a deeper, more meaningful connection than if you just stay at that surface of like, things are fine, works great, you know, same old, same old. That doesn't force you into a deeper connection quickly, but being vulnerable does. And so I often encourage people to, you know, definitely share the good things like work's going great, right. but also share the difficult things like work's going great, but I didn't get that promotion I was working really hard for last year. And now I don't know, like, if that means I should think about moving on or if that means like, maybe it wasn't the right time. And like, we have to be willing to say the things that are really weighing on us and be open about that, not be a negative Nelly and not, you know, down not focus on the down things, but really be honest about where you are with, with, with your life. Because I think that's really important to helping people more connect, more, more deeply connect with you. What, what would you say to those of us who feel right now, like we don't have any deep relationships and she's referring to the word community. And I don't even know what that word really means. Cause I, I certainly don't have it in my own life. So wh where do we begin deepening relationships and where could we begin seeking community if we don't currently feel like we have one? So it takes a lot of work. Um, this isn't something that, you know, oh, you have one meaningful conversation with someone and then you turn around and a week later you're BFFs and you are part of the same community group and playing dodgeball every week, right? Like that's not, that's not how showing up works, right? You have to start somewhere. Maybe that is a colleague that you've always admired, or maybe it's like, you know, a friend that you guys have had kind of off and on friendly conversations over time, or it's someone from your church that, you know, you guys volunteer on the same committee, but you're not really kind of deeply showing up for people. Um, and then it's about, again, building a practice where you're consistently showing up for that person. And then that person becomes three people. And then that three people becomes 10 people. But what it means is that you have to kind of you know, when we think about, um, I'll, I'll compare it to marriage, right? When you think about your romantic relationships, you give a lot of mental attention, emotional attention, um, you know, to, to that relationship, to that mm -hmm. spouse that you're in a relationship with. But we sometimes have to give our non-romantic relationships a similar level of care. You kind of have to think about it like, this is your favorite sports team, right? And like, how would I show up for my favorite sports team? Like I'd make a dirt jersey and like show up at the game, right? And I would cheer that sports team on. If it's my my spouse or my, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend, I would like make sure that I send them thinking of you texts, right? Like mm -hmm. we have to 
give the non-romantic relationships in our lives a similar level of attention. Like if there was a day that, you know, they lost someone or they, you know, that like in a certain month, you know, that, that friend of yours from church lost their spouse the next year, it means like telling them, Hey, I know this month must be hard for you. I'm here. If you want to talk about it, I'm just thinking of you. Like you have to make effort to show up for people. What is the low hanging fruit way you check in with someone, right? Is it just sending emojis on text? Maybe that's all it is. But like even just once, once a week, sending like a random combination of emojis to a friend is how you like low key touch base with them. But it like creates a, a touch point and a way of just checking in with someone that becomes a method of communication that becomes consistent and regular. So all of these things are just practices that you have to put into place. You can't just flip a switch and do it. And it, and it means knowing about other people in their lives. It means sending them funny things that you see that you want to share with someone. It means, oh, this was a topic that they talked about that they got real fired up about at that work meeting. Maybe I should like send them an article I saw about that topic Mm -hmm. or talk to them about that topic over coffee. It's about making mental notes about people that you then revisit when you communicate with them and interact with them because building community and building deeper relationships takes work. It's a practice. It does not happen over one coffee. It does not happen over one meeting. It literally takes time. And we have to think about the relationships and the community that we want to build as being like a, a, a non-romantic version of those spouse relationships or children relationships that we spent a lot of time investing in, we've got to take a fraction of that and apply that to other people if we're trying to build deep connections with them as well. I love it. I love the idea of, of um, treating it like you would a sports team. You invest time researching <laughs> that. You wear their jerseys. You buy the hat. You paint your face. And then we ignore our coworkers and we ignore our neighbors. Exactly. And and it's unacceptable. And it, and it doesn't have to go down like that. So I'm going to pivot a little bit on you right now. My understanding is that you are listening to NPR and you hear some some actor and the, the the story that you're hearing is so moving that you're like, you know what? I'm in. I'm going to call Rain Wilson to talk about this <laughs> odd interaction. Yeah. So I, uh, like I said, I studied journalism and I uh, was at one point getting a master's in at Northwestern University in media management. And I wrote this thesis around kind of the need for media to create uh, content that is more entertaining around big ideas like philosophy and spirituality and, you know, what makes the world go round. Um, and I just thought that there needed to be a media platform about these kind of big ideas. So fast forward seven years later, I'm living in Washington, D.C working and uh, listening to NPR on my drive uh, to the office. This actor from the office was on there and he's talking about um, the need uh, for the world to tackle these big ideas and make spirituality and philosophy cool and relevant again. And he was working on a media platform that would do just that. And I had this very visceral, um, oh my God, Rain Wilson stole my idea (laughs) reaction. He'll be hearing from um, my attorney on this one. Yeah, I was like, oh my God, like this thesis of mine is in my parents' garage and somehow he like has captured the sentiment of all of it and how did that happen? And and I at first was actually really defeated by it. I was like, well, of course the celebrity with the money and the access is able to do it um, and make this happen. And I had this idea seven years ago and I haven't been able to make it happen. And I, I, after a couple uh, weeks of kind of dwelling on this, I was like, well, why can't I? Like, why can't I be a part of this? And why can't I help bring this to life? Let me find a way to do that. And and I don't know, I don't know what it was that flipped in my head that made me kind of flip the narrative almost of what I was telling myself. Um, but I suddenly became like, well, why can't I? Gosh darn it, why can't I? <laughs> so I, I used more colorful language, but why can't I? Yeah. Um, and so I started calling and uh, calling up friends and emailing people who were still in LA. And I said, listen, I really need to get in touch with this actor. He's got this idea for a business that I think I can help him with. Um, I really think my background can help him get it off the ground. Don't know if he's working with someone, but would love to just have a conversation with him or his team. And eventually, you know, a friend of a friend of a friend put me in touch with his business partner at the time and uh, had a conversation with him, talked about what I did. And uh, it just kind of went from there. And uh, eventually they said, listen, we really think you can help us from a content perspective and helping us build this. But the, the caveat is that we launch in three weeks and we don't really have any content. So you'd have to kind of dive in and make it happen in three weeks. And I said, 
sign me up. And, uh, and three weeks later, uh, we launched the site and that was 10 years ago. When you launched the site, did you imagine, you know what, I bet about, I bet about a decade downstream, we're going to hit a billion views. Was that the dream or is it like, no, man, we, we were hoping for a hundred and we cannot believe we've crossed that. I mean, when we launched, we only had a little bit of video content. We were trying to kind of create written content and photos and a social community. It was just a, a much kind of broader spectrum. And and we never, I never would have guessed at the time that we would pivot and become a hundred percent video content and content experience company. Um, I would never in a million years have guessed that we would uh, be on the verge of crossing a billion video views. Like mm-hmm. that just, I don't think would have ever crossed my mind. But I think that's the beauty of um, when you, throw yourself into something and a new experience and a new opportunity, um, uh, you never know what's going to be around the corner. When I was growing up as a, you know, again, child of immigrants, I never would have guessed that there were companies that could have a billion video views on, right. on things, right? And I never would have guessed that there was like an entire, you know, uh, media and entertainment business that could be built around joy and, and positivity, like that wasn't even a, a idea or a thought in my head. And now we've, we've built that and I'm like, holy cow, I can't even imagine what in 10 years or in 15 years we're going to look like or what the world is going to look like. And I think that's exciting. It's, it's scary. It's exciting. It's all of the feels. So, um, uh, I, I love having been part of the journey and I love what we've built and I'm really proud of it. You have built some amazing articles, pictures, and of course now videos. Uh, I made a list of a few of my favorite. I don't know how you feel about these. I think the one probably maybe most known by our listeners might be Kid President. I think we all need a pep talk. The world needs you to stop being boring. Yeah, you. Boring is easy. Everybody can be boring, but you're gooder than that. Life is not a game, people. Life isn't a cereal either. Well, it is a cereal. And if life is a game, aren't we all on the same team? I mean, really, right? I'm on your team, be on my team. This is life, people. We got air coming through your nose. We got heartbeat. That means it's time to do something. For the ones that don't know the story of Tell My Story, what's the genesis of that one? So Tell My Story actually started because we wanted to create a show or a series about implicit bias, about the assumptions that we make about other people that we're completely unaware of that we're making. And when we first started talking about this, we were like, well, that just sounds really boring and scientific and that doesn't sound entertaining at all. How are we going to make a show that tackles this idea of bias, but does it in an entertaining way? The place that we make the most assumptions right now is on dating apps. When people are just swiping left and right on images, that's when you're making just all these assumptions based Mm -hmm. on like a split second uh, perception of someone. Like we should make it a dating show that challenges the, the assumptions we make about people and the biases we have. Assumptions that people make of me are that, first of all, they don't think I'm a, I run a company. I don't dress exactly like a CEO or anything like that. I go to work in shorts. Why do humans make assumptions? That's kind of just like your environment, your surroundings. You grow up in a certain way of life and you kind of create these ideals in your mind. The show is a dating show where two people come in, they sit in front of each mm-hmm. other and they try to, they, they just sight unseen decide whether they would date or not date the other person just based on the person sitting in front of them. And then they go on this progressively deeper journey into what the other person is about, who they are, what they stand for, all by making guesses about them. So painfully awkward, but like they're sitting across from a guy and they're like, mm, I think your name is Charlie and you're a graphic designer and you grew up in Ohio. And the, and the person across the way is like, yeah, no, wildly wrong. Here's actually who I am and what I do. And so it gets to be progressively deeper guesses you're making about the person, about their beliefs, about their family, about how they think about money, about whether they want kids or not. And you're making it all solely based on like this very One little thing, information yes. you have on them. And so it becomes very, very fun and awkward and uh, really fascinating to watch. And by the end, oftentimes people then will change their mind on whether or not they would date someone um, based on the fact that they actually had a conversation. And so it's really funny. We never say that this is a show about biases. 
And yet all the comments are like, holy cow, I totally assume the same thing. I didn't know I make so many assumptions about people. And so the conversation is happening as a result, but it's through the lens of this kind of entertaining dating show. And that's the way we like to think about content is how can we take something that is a deep, real human thing? And how can we make something entertaining and fun to watch that that explores that? Well, perhaps the deepest one that I at least I'm familiar with is my last days. So uh, succinctly describe what the genesis of that was and, and what the product was that you created. So my last days uh, was in a desire to kind of tackle top, taboo topics. We thought the, the the most taboo topic of all is death. Um, so how do we talk about death in a way that is joyful and uplifting? And we said, well, you know, the people who probably have the most insight into how do you make your life matter um, uh, from that perspective are people who are faced with the end of the clock, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're faced with a terminal illness, you really change your priorities. You change what you spend your time on. And we thought there was something to be learned from that. Zach can't stop writing lyrics. There are so many songs he wants to leave behind. With only months to live, his song called Clouds was born. I fell down, down, down to this dark and lonely hole. There was no one there to care about me anymore. amazing stories about people who uh, were given a terminal diagnosis and they changed their life and their perspective on life as a result. And it was so heartwarming and so life-affirming to hear their stories. And now the show is on the CW. It's going into its fourth season. And we're really proud of kind of the stories that we're telling because it really is a topic that people don't talk about, but can really be very life-affirming. How gratifying is it? And this will be the final question I ask about Soul Pancake and the work you do, but how gratifying is it to do work that matters well and be paid for it? I mean, you're proving the countercultural movement is actually alive. (laughs) And like, this is, it's possible to do something that matters to make a difference and to go home happy, to have a roof over your head, to have the windows cleaned. Like this, this works. How gratifying is that? It's in, in it's insanely gratifying. I'm I'm living the dream. I'm so, so, so lucky that I get to do something that I love that makes me feel like I'm I'm living a real purpose, that I'm making a difference in people's lives and telling stories that move them and uplift them. And and honestly that I'm doing what my mom told me and being a service. So <laughs> Well, Shabnam, we, we have uh, a, a, what we call the Live Inspired Seven. It's seven questions that tie all of our guests together. Pretty simple layup questions, but we're going to begin with number one. Number one is what is the best book you've ever read? Ooh, uh, well, my favorite book of all time is so cheesy. It's Pride and Prejudice. Wow. Uh, I love Pride and Prejudice. I read it once a year. It's like my, my soft inner romantic heart, uh, like just loves it. <laughs> That is awesome. What, what is it about Pride and Prejudice that you love? Uh, I just, honestly, I love the number of misunderstandings <laughs> there are. And that at the end of the day, like these are just two humans trying to find love. And there's so many things that get in your way when you're looking for something so simple. And I just, I love that about it. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a child that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? <laughs> I was I was a very playful and imaginative child. I was constantly, again, growing up without a lot of material things. You kind of have to learn to entertain yourself. So I was constantly orchestrating, putting on plays and, you know, what is a game that I can invent and play? And that playfulness and uh, imaginative nature that I had as a kid, I sometimes find myself craving for the time to do that. Mm-hmm. I try really hard to bring it into kind of our culture as a company, playfulness, but oftentimes I get so mired in meetings and calls and so on and so forth that I forget to have that as just part of my day-to-day um, personally. And so I wish there was more of that in my day-to-day. Well, it's funny you say that, but I, I just hear it in your voice, like uh, the, the, <laughs> the joy and the play and the curiosity and what uh, what we all had as kids. It seems like you still have that a pretty good handle on it now. I try. Well, it's awesome. Don't lose it. If your home caught fire and all living things are out, your sisters, your parents, your animals, your friends, everybody's out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what one item would you come running back outside with? 
Uh, I would come, I would probably come running out with a ring uh, that is, um, it was my great grandmother's ring and it was passed to my grandmother and then it was passed from my grandmother to my aunt and my aunt gave it to me and it goes from the, uh, it's been passed to basically the oldest woman, the oldest daughter um, in every generation. And so I can't wait for myself or my sister, one of my sisters to have a girl, a little girl (laughs) that I can pass it to. So I would probably take that. Tell me what it looks like and then tell me what it what it really means to you. Uh, it's a it's a gold band with a kind of black opal uh, stone in it, and it's got kind of um, uh, some Arabic script in it. It's it's Arabic script that's written on it, um, uh, and it and it and what it translates to is God is the greatest. But what it means to me is not really the the religious element of it or the God element of it. What it really means to me is it means family, and family is so so important to me, um, and tradition and and family and togetherness. And so um, I love that that's what the ring kind means it's it bridges generations which i love if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead who would you want to be seated right next to uh i would love to be seated next to uh my grandfather um he was one of my favorite humans in the world he passed away a year ago um and uh i just wish i had spent more time really talking to him mm-hmm. um uh, I, I had such a great time with him always and and loved spending time with him, but I feel like I didn't have as many deep conversations with him as I wish I had before he passed away. What's one thing you wish you would have asked? Of my grandfather? Yes. Like, you know, uh, I it yeah, seems I like we, we finally realized what we should have asked once we can't do it anymore. So true. It's so true. And honestly, I've heard so many stories from him of growing up and he was the, he's, uh, one of, uh, he was one of seven kids and five of them actually passed away before they reached adulthood. And so I never really asked him about that. Like, does he remember those siblings who passed away? Um, what was that like to be like one of the few surviving members kids? Um, what did that mean for his family? Did he feel pressure from that to kind of, you know, be successful and, and really have a big family, which he did end up having like what did that do like being one of the two kids that survived um in his family growing up in 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 iran so i just i wish i had asked him about that what's the best advice that your grandfather or anyone else that you look up to and respect has ever given you so what's the best advice that you've ever received well, the best advice I've ever received professionally um, is to hire people who are smarter than you. Um, that's really critical, and it's something that I've taken to heart, is always hire people who are smarter than you because you your company will always be better off for it. Um, and you'll learn so much in the process. And then the best advice I've received from a personal perspective is um, – uh, how important it is to, uh, how important self-care is, um, that you've got to take some time every single day to do something for yourself and take care of yourself. Because if you're not feeling whole and if you don't feel cared for, then it's really hard for you to care for others. Well said again. And, and, uh, second and final question, what would you tell your 20 year old self? Uh, <laughs> I would tell my 20 year old self to not uh, take things quite so seriously that uh, um, there's a very, very long life still ahead of you. <laughs> Shabnam Maharbi, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? You know, Aristotle says that a person cannot truly determine if they've had a happy life until the end of their life. And I feel like I still have a very long life to to live. So I don't feel like committing to a one sentence yet. That is right. I think I got a lot more living to do before I can do that. Uh, She lived a long, long, long life at the end of this journey. And I like that Aristotle quote. I think that's really cool. I'll be using it. When, <laughs> if people want to learn more about the work you do or the journey that you are leading, where, where can we learn more? Uh, absolutely. You can go to soulpancake.com or you can check out all of our videos on youtube.com slash soulpancake. Shabnam, I, I so appreciate your time and, uh, and the impact that you're making on almost a billion lives. Thank you, John. I really have admired your story and I think what you're doing and the types of people that you're talking to is really amazing. So thank you as well for having me. You're welcome. My friends, this is your day. Live inspired. Listeners, as you know, I 
take notes. I take notes in the morning. Every morning as the sun rises in the east, I take notes as I watch it rise and I ask the question, why me? Throughout the day, I take notes on what I'm seeing and experiencing cool quotes, people who move me, opportunities to make a difference. I ask the question, who cares? And I try to answer it like I do, I do. And each evening I ask the question, what more can I do? It's a simple way to get clear on one thing I can do for the following day to make sure it's just a little bit better than today. Sometimes that means better at work, better in my faith walk, better as a podcast host, better as a presenter or an author or as a husband, as a dad, as a servant, as a child of God. Whatever the role might be at that time, I wanna get a little bit better. Well, in addition to all of that note-taking, I also take notes while our guests are on the air. You may not know that. Sometimes I'm writing, sometimes I'm typing, but I'm always feverishly taking note. It helps me recognize things that they are saying that are valuable. So I'm gonna remind you just of a couple points that I made today. Our ability to show up is beginning to degrade. Do you remember hearing that? Our ability to show up is beginning to degrade. Shabnam mentioned that social media has changed the way we show up for people who are going through something emotional. Or simply we feel like, you know, if we like a photo, that's enough. If we put together little hands and say, hey, praying, hey, okay, we, we cover that base. We checked off that box, but she reminds us, and we've all been reminded of, the, of this in the past, it's not enough. We need human inter interaction. We're made to do life together. And Shabnam was a great re reminder that social media can be used to elevate the conversation, but it cannot be used in place of conversation. There is a difference. It cannot be used in place of our conversations. We got to do life with one another. And that's when I mentioned the story of Susan sitting Shiva with her friend from Colorado and the impact that she had on this friend, the impact that they had doing life mourning together. If you want to read the entire story I wrote about Miss Susan and her friend and that experience and coming together and suffering and struggling and also rising above and experiencing joy together. I encourage you right now to go to our show notes. I'll certainly have a link for it there. And then finally, one of my favorite takeaways from today's podcast was her dad. Her dad sounds just like a remarkable guy, a guy who's so convicted in his own faith walk that he is open to the ideas of someone else in theirs. I want you Republicans and you Democrats and you independents to hear that. And I want you conservatives and you liberals. Uh, imagine believing so strongly in what you know that you open up your house on Saturdays and you say, come and join me. I wanna learn from you. I wanna do life with you. I wanna hear about your faith traditions. I wanna experience it together. And then I wanna grow and do life better together than we ever could separated. My friends, we are called through the Live Inspired movement to bust down the walls that divide us from one another. And I, I think this gentleman reminds us of the power of doing that beginning in our own homes. It's a challenge to me. I heard it. I hope you did as well. And I hope we together can step into it this week and beyond. I wanna thank you for listening to the podcast today. I wanna thank you for living forward the message today. And I wanna remind you again, the reason we continue to touch lives through this podcast is because you're sharing. You're sharing on social media. You're telling friends that you work out with, that you worship with, that you do life with about the Live Inspired podcast. If you haven't yet, I encourage you right now to subscribe. It's a cool way to make sure that these are funneled right into your inbox. So subscribe right now and then comment. Let, let, let's continue the movement. Let's tell more people about the Live Inspired podcast and let's remind them together that the best days are in front of them. So for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary. And my friends, this is your day. Live inspired. <laughs>